The ACBE Forum, Volume 59, August 2020, Number 2. Published by the American Council of the Blind. Read by Nancy Gahagan in the recording studio of the Perkins Library. Be a part of ACB. The American Council of the Blind, trademark, is a membership organization made up of more than 70 state and special interest affiliates. To join, contact the National Office at one 800 424-8666. Contribute to our work. Those much-needed contributions, which are tax-deductible, can be sent to Attention Treasurer, ACB 6300 Shingle Creek Parkway, Suite 155, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, 55430. If you wish to remember a relative or friend, the National Office has printed cards available for this purpose. Consider including a gift to ACB in your last will and testament. If your wishes are complex, call the National Office. To make a contribution to ACB by the Combined Federal Campaign, use this number, 11155. Check in with ACB. For the latest in legislative and governmental news, call the Washington Connection 24-7 at 1-800-424-8666 or read it online. Listen to ACB reports by downloading the MP3 file from www.acb.org or call 518-906-1820 and choose option 8. Tune in to ACB Radio at www.acbradio.org or by calling 518-906-1820. Learn more about us at www.acb.org. Follow us on Twitter at at ACB National or like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash A-M-E-R-I-C-A-N-C-O-U-N-C-I-L-O-F-T-H-E-B-L-I-N-D-O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L. Copyright 2020, American Council of the Blind. Eric Bridges, Executive Director, Sharon Lovering, Editor, 1703 North Beauregard Street, Suite 420, Alexandria, Virginia, 22311. Table of Contents President's Message 100-Year Opportunity for Significant Change by Dan Spoon Like Polio, COVID-19 Will Be Beat by Larry P. Johnson the Kindness and Generosity of Neighbors by Jessica Mandich Virus or Victim, Where is the Balance? by Arturo Espinoza COVID-19 and Blindness Why the New Touchless, Physically Distant World Sucks for People with Visual Impairment by Nicholas Judici, Ph.D. The What, Why, When, Where, and How of Diaphragmatic Breathing by Linda Bole. Pick a Peck of Pandemics by Paul Edwards The End of October by Lawrence Wright A Review by Penny Reader Book Review When Your Ears Can't Help You See by David Fauché Beginning Again by Anne Chapetta Cavemen, Christians, and Civilized Society Labels Categorize, Separate, and Demean by Anthony Corona Affiliate and Committee News 
Here and There, edited by Cynthia G. Hawkins. High Tech Swap Shop. Are you moving? Do you want to change your subscription? Contact Sharon Lovering in the ACB National Office, 1 800 424 8666, or via email, slovering at acb.org. Give her the information and she'll make the changes for you. Keep up with the most important ACB news and announcements without any other chatter. Subscribe to the ACB Announce Listserv. Send a blank email to announce subscribe at acblists.org or visit www.acblists.org slash mailman slash L-I-S-T-I-N-F-O slash A-N-N-O-U-N-C-E and type your email address and name where indicated. Keep up with the HAPS when affiliates stream conventions at www.acbradio.org slash L-I-V-E. Got a request? Tune in to ACB Radio Interactive and ask the GJ on duty to play it for you at www.acbradio.org President's Message 100-Year Opportunity for Significant Change by Dan Spoon The year 2020 may very well go down in history as the most influential year of the first half of the 21st century. We are dealing with a worldwide pandemic, an awakening of the urgent need to solve the 400-year struggle of racial discrimination in America and an historic presidential election in the most politically polarized nation in my lifetime. We are all on edge. We are questioning our leaders, reconfirming our core values, and worrying about the future. Is this a time of despair or hope? Each day seems to bring another opportunity to examine our core beliefs and think about the next steps in an uncertain future. It is with this mindset that I took the opportunity to reread the first chapter of our ACB history book, People of Vision. My thoughts were back in the decades from 1918 through 1945. This period, 100 years ago, was highlighted by two world wars, a worldwide pandemic, the Great Depression, and some very significant advancements in the civil rights of the blind and visually impaired community. Yes, that's right. These decades of huge unrest, uncertainty, and physical harm were accompanied by the formation of civic organizations for the blind, federal and state legislation for blind services, the launch of blind consumer entities, and the establishment of formal vocational services through federal and state programs. As chronicled in People of Vision, here are some of the major accomplishments during these tumultuous times. The Hadley School for the Blind was founded in 1920, The American Foundation for the Blind, AFB, was formed in 1921. National Braille Press printed its first magazine in 1927. In 1920, the federal government passed the first Vocational Rehabilitation Act, acknowledging the need for social services for the disabled. The Seeing Eye Incorporated was founded in 1929 as the first guide dog school in the United States. In 1931, the first White Cane Safety Ordinance was passed in the state of Illinois after the Peoria Lions Club petitioned the state legislature. 
Lions International, later that same year, adopted the White Cane as their major service project. In 1931, Congress approved funds for the establishment of a program through the Library of Congress to provide books to the adult blind. AFB enhanced this program with the first talking book player in 1934. The California Council of the Blind was formed on October 6, 1934, in Fresno, California. The Pennsylvania Federation of the Blind was formed in 1934. In 1935, the Social Security Act, Title X, established aid to blind people as a separate assistance category. The Randolph-Shepard Act created the Blind Vendor Program in 1936, and the Wagner-O'Day Act established the National Industries for the Blind, NIB, which grew from a $1 million business in 1940 to a $32 million business from 1941 through 1945. Congress and President Franklin Roosevelt authorized the funding for the State Vocational Rehabilitation Program through a bill in 1943 that launched the current structure of state agencies serving the blind. The first national consumer organization was formed in 1940 with the Charter of the National Federation of the Blind and the Blind Veterans Association was formed in 1945. How did all of this progress happen for the blind and visually impaired community in the middle of such turbulent times? My belief is that only occasionally is society ready to accept significant change. We had this social climate 100 years ago, and we have it again today. This is our opportunity to initiate change inside of ACB and offer outreach to members of our community to join our wonderful organization. We must seize this moment to embrace inclusion and make intentional decisions on the future of our organization. We should learn from our past and chart a path for the future that proposes bold legislative imperatives for audio description, inclusive healthcare services, accessible voting, inclusive universal design for all digital environments, and universal access to transportation. ACB must become the chief influencer for the blind and visually impaired community, and we must welcome all people to our ACB family. We need to be intentional in our efforts to nurture diversity and inclusion. Together, we can embrace this unique opportunity for change. This is our decade to shine. Like Polio, COVID-19 Will Be Beat by Larry P. Johnson Reprinted from the San Antonio Express News, June 27, 2020 Editor's Note Larry Johnson is an author and motivational speaker. You may contact him via email at larjo numeral one at prodigy dot net. End of note. History does have a strange way of repeating itself, and it can teach us a lot, if we're willing to learn. On June 17, 1916, an official announcement was made in Brooklyn, New York, of the existence of an epidemic disease called polio. That year, there were more than 27,000 cases and more than 6,000 deaths due to polio in the United States, more than 2,000 deaths in New York City alone. The names and addresses of individuals with confirmed polio cases were published daily in the press. Their houses were identified with placards, and their families were quarantined. The 1916 epidemic caused widespread panic, and thousands fled the city to nearby mountain resorts. Movie theaters were closed. Meetings were canceled. Public gatherings were almost non-existent. 
and children were warned not to drink from water fountains or go to amusement parks or the beach. The disease hit without warning and required long quarantine periods, during which parents were separated from their children. It was impossible to tell who would get the disease and who would be spared. Does this sound familiar? Polio ravaged our country for decades. At its peak in the 1940s and 50s, polio would paralyze or kill more than half a million people worldwide annually. It was a plague. One day you had a headache, and within hours you could be paralyzed. How the virus crept up your spine determined whether you could walk afterward or even breathe. Parents waited fearfully every summer to see if it would strike. The city closed the swimming pools and everyone stayed home, cooped up indoors. Summer seemed like winter. In 1952, the polio epidemic in the United States set a record. 57,628 cases were reported. Of that, 3,145 people died, and 21,269 were left with disabling paralysis. To put this in perspective, the U.S. had less than half the population in 1952 that it has today. Then, Dr. Jonas Salk developed a polio vaccine. Testing began in 1952, and it was approved and made available for widespread use three years later. An oral vaccine followed in 1962. As a result of widespread immunization against polio, the disease has now virtually been eliminated in the United States. So, as scary as it may feel right now, and despite the immense number of lives lost to coronavirus, we know it will be conquered. It is possible that within a year, or maybe less, scientists will come up with a safe and reliable vaccine that will provide us not with only the protection from the virus, but the peace of mind we are yearning for. We will mourn the loss of loved ones, struggle to regain our economic equilibrium, and hopefully have learned some valuable lessons on how to be better prepared to deal with the next virus. For indeed, there will be others, scientists say. We absolutely must require our leaders to be more vigilant and more willing to heed the advice of epidemiologists and other experts, take strong action to mobilize and direct all necessary resources to where they need to go early on, be totally open and honest with us about the dangers we face, and be clear, consistent, and decisive about the solutions they propose. I have no doubt we will win the battle against COVID-19. But as we recover, let us pause to reflect on the mistakes that were made and resolve to do much better next time. And that's how I see it. The Kindness and Generosity of Neighbors by Jessica Mandich When I moved to Pittsburgh three years ago, I didn't know anyone in my apartment building, nor did I socialize with them. I was the only tenant with a vision disability in my building. To be completely honest, my neighbors didn't know how to socialize or interact with a person with a vision disability. Sure, I could break the ice and introduce myself, but I hardly see them during the day. Every now and then I'll get a, Hi, how are you? Or, Have a nice day. And maybe once in a while a little bit of small talk. Like to ask about the weather. I'd never get anything more than that, even if we needed help bringing in heavy bags, or if there's a package for me that I don't know about. The only socialization I had with the apartment complex was primarily from the manager's office. And the tenants from other buildings? Primarily the community areas such as the community pool. I remember one time I managed to get tangled up with another swimmer. 
It was the first real interaction I had had with a fellow resident. A few minutes later, a teenager asked me why I was wearing sunglasses when it was cloudy out. But those people were not my neighbors. When coronavirus came to Pittsburgh, I had to prepare early before essential supplies like toilet paper ran out. Two months into the pandemic and stay-at-home orders, I get a phone call from management. The manager asked if I knew any neighbors who were offering me help. And I told her that I hardly even speak a word to my neighbors. She then tells me that the neighbor above me hasn't seen me out and about lately. The neighbor saw that my mom's tires on her car were flat for over a month. Concerned and wanting to help, she contacted management. The manager told me that if I ever needed anything to leave a note taped to my door. I thanked the manager, but informed her that because I am high risk due to organ transplant, I cannot allow non-delivery personnel to handle my orders or approach my door. With delivery, those people are wearing masks and gloves. Plus, some are using hand sanitizer to the point where I can smell it. But those people are ordered by their company to use proper hygiene with each and every delivery. Some companies, like DoorDash and Target, offer contactless delivery. But with the neighbors, you simply don't know who's sick and who is not. Anytime I open my door, I run the risk of catching your cold or your virus. Before I hung up the phone, I asked the manager to pass along a note on my behalf to thank the neighbor for her offer. That if I ever needed assistance, I would leave a note on my door. Even if I cannot accept her offer, I do appreciate the kind gesture. After all, I didn't want to be rude to her. Even if my sister and brother-in-law are not able to pick up groceries, I can always use Instacart or Target same-day or two-day delivery. The one thing that concerns me the most? Just how long this type of kindness and generosity will continue, and whether it will last after the virus is long gone. It should not take a virus or a pandemic for neighbors to reach out to those who are the most vulnerable. To the neighbor who kindly offered my mom and I assistance, we simply say thank you. I hope to thank you in person and pay it forward once this virus is long gone. Virus or Victim? Where is the Balance? By Arturo Espinoza. After March of 2020, our nation shut down due to the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic. And along with that event, a new phrase was born, social distancing. It seemed like all at once we became a country of homebound communities that had to wear gloves and masks everywhere we went. Families in panic mode and other groups of opportunistic individuals were buying cases of water, toilet paper, and other cleaning sanitation products, which were then being sold for outrageous prices on the internet. Fights over shopping carts were happening. All of a sudden, families, friends, and acquaintances had to forego normal behaviors such as sharing space within large gatherings, shaking hands, hugging, and kissing. In short, fear of this viral threat seemed to be a part of what some people were calling the new normal. Now, three months and 23 days later, various businesses have thankfully opened while following CDC guidelines. As I am both an optimist and a realist, and a totally blind person, I found myself wondering how others within the blind community have been coping with the effects of the shutdown over the last several months. Having been a facilitator for a blindness support group since 2015, it is my hope that some or all of the tips discussed below will be helpful in allaying unnecessary fear and anxiety. 1. Talk to your primary doctor or someone in the medical field. Don't be afraid to ask questions. After all, a closed mouth doesn't get fed. 2. Pray. 
spiritual health is just as important as physical health. 3. If available, look for reliable material on this subject. 4. Instead of isolating yourself in your homes, take a daily walk around your premises. If that is not possible, go outside and take in some sun and fresh air. 5. If you don't have one, develop a social network of people that you can contact by phone, FaceTime, Skype, or Zoom chat. These networks can include friends, family, or church members. 6. Download or order and read an audiobook that you know you will enjoy. 7. Listen to music or a favorite movie. 8. For maintaining good neurological and emotional health, keep a consistent sleeping schedule of at least 6 to 7 hours. 9. Always take what the media has to say with a cautionary grain of salt. In the end, we know that COVID 19 is a real virus and that it has caused its share of fatalities. So, what you can do to minimize any anxiety or trepidation is to educate yourself. Understand the nature of your fear and ask yourself if what you are afraid of is based on fact or hearsay. Perhaps part of understanding our fears is reflected in the following quote In order for one to learn the important lessons of life, one must first overcome a fear each day. Ralph Waldo Emerson. COVID 19 and blindness. Why the New Touchless, Physically Distant World Sucks for People with Visual Impairment. By Nicholas A. Judici, PhD. Editor's Note This is a condensed version of Nicholas Judici's original article. To read the full version online, visit tinyurl.com slash y numeral 9 t o t p numeral 2 a. End of note. As a congenitally blind person, it has become obvious to me that my reliance on touch as a primary mode of experiencing the world puts me at odds with current best practices for avoiding the coronavirus. The principal guidance for safeguarding against COVID 19 is to 1. curtail physical contact with those around us or the things they touch, 2. limit touching of our body, especially of the face. And three, maintain a minimum proximity bubble during social interactions, ideally of six feet or more. In this essay, I discuss how an unanticipated consequence of following this guidance for staying safe is the effective demonization of touch, which has led to many unforeseen challenges for more than 12 million people in the U.S. and over 285 million people worldwide who are blind or visually impaired. BVI. When you cannot see the world, touch picks up the slack for vision by taking on a dominant role in how it's explored, understood, and interacted with. For BVI people, perception inherently involves touch, either with the hands or the long cane. This physical contact provides critical knowledge about all matter of things monitoring if one's hair is a mess, identifying what is in the immediate vicinity, orienting to people or objects in the surrounding environment, etc. Touch and vision communicate much of the same information about the world. Feeling or seeing the curve of my coffee mug, the 90 degree edge of my desk, and many other spatial attributes can all be perceived similarly from both sensory inputs. This sensory equivalence helps explain why touch fills many of the same shoes as vision for blind folks. In many ways, asking a blind person to curtail touching is like asking a sighted person to go about their day wearing a blindfold.
1. Touch and Physical Contact The guidance to limit physical contact with any public-facing surfaces and to not touch those around us is incredibly difficult for BVI people. Part of the challenge is logistical. When your hands take on much of the work of your eyes, it is simply not possible to not touch doorknobs, railings, tables, and the like. This is concerning, as it is these common-use surfaces that are most likely to be vectors of COVID-19. The best advice for anybody exposed to such things is to immediately wash their hands for at least 20 seconds each time. Unfortunately, I have found that an unexpected outcome of this frequent hand-washing regimen is that the prolonged exposure to water desensitizes my fingers, resulting in me becoming functionally illiterate afterward. For BVI people, physical contact plays many roles. Sometimes it is purely functional. For instance, many BVI individuals hold on to the elbow or shoulder of a sighted guide during navigation. Touch also represents an important component of building rapport and developing interpersonal connections. Just as a sighted person may feel they are not fully engaged if they don't make eye contact when talking, BVI people often derive the same sense of connection by touching the arm or shoulder when communicating. The fear of touch has crept into even the most mundane of my daily activities. In the past, a friend or colleague might touch my arm to get my attention, guide my hand to check out some interesting thing we are walking past, touch my shoulder to direct me to move one way or another, or even draw the shape of something on my arm as part of an explanation. These subtle forms of physical contact are important to BVI individuals for supporting efficient communication and navigation. The loss of these small but significant forms of contact leaves me feeling adrift, unfocused, and less connected to those around me. Physical contact during social interactions has other benefits for blind people. For instance, shaking a person's hand confers information about exactly where they are in relation to me. A handshake also provides important knowledge about the other person that is readily perceived through sight. For instance, Hand size and structure tells me something about general body type and weight. The elevation of the hand, in conjunction with voice, provides me with information about height. The texture of the skin, feel of the fingernails, and presence nature of rings imparts information about style and self-grooming practices. Intensity of the grip provides information about physical strength and confidence, etc. When you cannot see the person you are interacting with, a battery of other sensory cues substitute for vision in building up an image of them. These subtle handshake cues are just one example of how non-visual information conveys relevant information about the physical characteristics of a person. I find that the new touchless modes of meeting and social interaction have left me more blind to the world than vision loss. 2. Face Touching The guidance to limit body contact and to not touch one's face represents a specific example of the above point posing particular challenges for BVI people. In many ways, a blind person uses their hands for self-monitoring, much like a sighted person might use a mirror. My hands are the surrogate mirror each morning when I want to check whether my beard is trimmed in a straight line, or if I have bedhead, or to ensure that I don't have a smidge of toothpaste on my lip, etc., this basic self-monitoring is important for daily grooming and for maintaining one's hygiene. In the COVID-19 reality, these normal activities of daily life, when performed using touch, now represent heightened risks. Can touching one's face expose you to the coronavirus? Absolutely. But should I stop engaging in self-monitoring tasks by means of touching my face, mouth, eyes, and nose?
absolutely not. Everybody will occasionally do such things, and blindly reducing our hands and our use of touch as little more than conveyance agents of the coronavirus is neither helpful nor scientifically accurate. If we are to act and react realistically, face touching will inevitably happen in the course of daily life. This is a normal activity that does not inherently increase the risk of COVID-19 infection when done prudently. We should focus on the virus itself and how we can best be protected. 3. Social distancing. The key safeguard for avoiding COVID-19 is to maintain good social distancing behavior. Following these guidelines, which involve keeping a six-foot radius between yourself and anybody around you, is trivial when performed using sight. But if you are trying to do so with eyes closed, you will find it extremely difficult. I generally become aware of another person in my vicinity when I hear them talk, when I touch them with my hand, or perhaps if close enough, when I smell their presence. Most people have a distinct scent. What can be perceived from these non-visual modalities is much less than vision. So the experience of the perceived world for BVI folks occurs at closer range than for their sighted peers. The challenge of maintaining appropriate social distancing behavior without vision is twofold. One, difficulty engaging the distance of nearby people. And two, challenges in maintaining this distance during movement. I find myself frequently violating the six-foot bubble. While I can imagine technological solutions for addressing this problem, the standard tools of long canes and guide dogs are not up to the task. Canes are too short, and guide dog training is not consistent with following social distancing procedures. My guide dog Bernie was trained in New York and was taught to operate in crowded situations by maximizing use of any available space. This includes going through any gap big enough for him and me to fit through, meaning that we often get very close to people as we navigate. This is increasingly problematic. As I approached an intersection on a recent walk, I heard this obviously freaked-out person start yelling at me to watch out and to not get any closer or I'll kick your rear end. I understand that this incident is based on fear. However, I have found that people exhibit less concern if bubble violations occur when I am verbally instructing the dog. So if I am aware of people around me when walking, I tell Bernie to stay left, right as I pass. This seems to put people at ease. Two things strike me when thinking back over the past three months. First, although I knew that I relied heavily on touch, I didn't realize its true magnitude in supporting my own self-monitoring behaviors, its role in how I interact with others and engage with the surrounding environment, and its impact on my emotional and social well-being until these interactions became associated with negative consequences. Second, while I appreciate the value of the safety guidance being advocated and understand people's concerns about physical contact, I cannot comprehend why people are not more troubled about the growing fear and distrust of one of our primary sensory channels, that of touch. If the tables were turned and the primary safety precaution from the CDC involves significant limitations on use of visual perception, for instance use of blindfolds in public, the result would be very different. The reality is that most people have a deep-seated, visceral fear of losing their vision. As a blind guy, I do not share this fear, but I'm petrified about losing any of my other senses. The realization that touch is now something to be feared and distrusted is disturbing to me. Touch may be a path of conveyance, but the result is contingent on many factors. We don't villainize the sun because it can give us skin cancer. We put on sunblock. Or avoid rock concerts because they can damage our hearing. We don earplugs. 
The best approach is to be mindful of minimizing touching of people and to limit contact with public surfaces. When these physical interactions occur, there is no substitute for prudent use of sanitizer, thorough disinfection of frequently touched areas, and assiduous hand washing. However, it is important to keep things in perspective. Simply touching your face to scratch an itch, shaking hands with a colleague, hugging a family member, or coming within six feet of a friend is not synonymous with contracting the coronavirus. If you interact with a BVI person, don't freak out if there is physical contact. Don't avoid assisting an older person who has tripped and needs a stabilizing arm, or shy away from helping a child who has fallen. These actions are what make us human and what supports a civilized society. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if the negative touch response is an unintended consequence or due to transference or overreaction. The COVID-19-induced backlash against touch is real. This response is likely to escalate as the economy starts to open, more people go outside, and social interactions become the norm. The result for BVI people is that many of the issues discussed here will persist and even increase, meaning that the new touchless normal is going to continue as the awkward abnormal for the BVI community. I am accustomed to a world that minimizes the role of touch, as it will always be the underappreciated younger sibling to vision. But a touchless future where we no longer shake hands, hug, or express physical affection is not a future I feel excited about. I worry this trajectory will continue unless we accept the mindset that safe and healthy behavior is possible. Until then, I mourn the loss of the world's feel around me. The what, why, when, where, and how of diaphragmatic breathing by Linda Bole. Editor's Note Dr. Linda Bole is a clinical psychologist and life coach. To learn more about Dr. Bole and her coaching practice, visit her website at www.capablecoach.com. End of note. As I have worked with clients over the years, I've had the opportunity to clarify many misconceptions about diaphragmatic breathing. Following are some of the more frequently asked questions along with my responses. What is diaphragmatic breathing? Diaphragmatic breathing, also known as abdominal or belly breathing, is a way of breathing that optimizes the use of the diaphragm, a dome-shaped muscle situated beneath the lungs that separates the chest cavity, where the heart and lungs reside, from the abdominal cavity, where the stomach, liver, intestines, and other abdominal organs reside. Why should I breathe diaphragmatically? Let's face it, modern-day life is stressful. And when we're stressed, our bodies go into overdrive, wherein breathing becomes more rapid and shallow, heart rate increases, muscles tense, and blood vessels constrict. These changes are part of the body's stress, also known as fight-or-flight response, and are meant to be adaptive. When the body is in this state for extended periods of time, however, its resources become depleted and the body begins to break down. Believe it or not, breathing diaphragmatically is one of the easiest and most convenient ways to elicit the body's relaxation response, bringing the body back into balance. In order to breathe diaphragmatically, we need to slow down the rate at which we are breathing, and when we make a conscious choice to breathe more slowly, the rest of the body begins to respond in kind. That is, the heart rate begins to decrease, muscles begin to relax, and blood vessels begin to dilate, 
all of which restore equilibrium and promote the healing process. When should I breathe diaphragmatically? One of the beauties of diaphragmatic breathing is that you don't have to take time out of your busy day in order to do it. Think of it this way. You're going to be breathing anyway, aren't you? Breathing diaphragmatically takes no more time than breathing in any other manner. All you have to do is remember to do it. Where should I breathe diaphragmatically? Another beauty of diaphragmatic breathing is that you can do it virtually anywhere, whether you're at home, at the office, or anywhere in between. Because everything you need in order to breathe diaphragmatically is built in. You don't need any special equipment. It goes where you go. How do I breathe diaphragmatically? Let me begin by reassuring you that your body already knows how to do this. Barring any complications at birth, newborn babies breathe diaphragmatically right from the get-go, which is to say that the ability to breathe diaphragmatically is hardwired. Nobody has to teach us how to do it. And even as adults, we breathe diaphragmatically while we sleep. By following these seven steps, you will be well on your way to breathing diaphragmatically during your waking hours as well. 1. Pick your position. Whether you choose to sit, stand, or lie down, you can breathe in a way that optimizes the use of your diaphragm. So, go ahead and pick the position that's most convenient and or comfortable for you. 2. Align your spine. Regardless of your position, it's important to keep your head, neck, and spine aligned. Doing so maximizes the airflow into and out of your lungs, keeps your energy flowing, and prevents you from developing muscular kinks. 3. Banish the belt. In order to breathe diaphragmatically, your abdomen, or belly, literally needs some breathing room. Belts, unless they are elasticized, skinny jeans, and other forms of restrictive clothing will prevent you from breathing in a way that's optimal. 4. Relax the abs. Now that you've banished the belt and scrapped the skinny jeans, it's time to relax your abdominal muscles. That's right, let it all hang out. If you're having a hard time discerning whether your abdominal muscles are relaxed, try lying on your back, as doing so will cause your abdominal muscles to relax automatically. You won't even have to think about it. 5. Let go of the shoulders. If you're engaging your neck and shoulder muscles every time you inhale and exhale, as many of us do out of habit, you're adding a lot of unnecessary tension to those muscles, leading to muscle strain and associated discomfort. Believe it or not, those neck and shoulder muscles have absolutely nothing to do with diaphragmatic breathing. So go ahead and let those muscles go. If you're having difficulty doing this, try thinking of yourself as a floppy ragdoll, because floppy ragdolls have no neck or shoulder muscles to engage. 6. Quiet the mind. Now that you've prepared your body to breathe diaphragmatically, it's time to get the mind on board. I say quiet the mind and not empty the mind because attempting to empty the mind for any length of time will be futile. Aristotle wasn't kidding when he asserted that nature abhors a vacuum. Our brains were built to think, so let's go with the flow and give that brain something calming to think about. You might, for example, imagine that you are sitting on a beautiful beach, walking through an enchanted forest, or relaxing by a cozy fire, enlisting all of your senses— Sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch will help to make this a truly rich experience. 7. Breathe slowly and lowly. Breathe slowly and quietly, in through the nose and out through the mouth. 
Doing so will allow you to draw your breath more deeply into your lungs, which optimizes the use of your diaphragm. How slow is slow? It depends on your comfort level. For now, choose a pace that's comfortable for you. And let me emphasize that the breathing is quiet. No one should be able to hear you when you're breathing diaphragmatically. Notice how the body responds to the breath as you inhale and exhale, placing one hand on the chest, just over the breastbone, and the other hand on the abdomen, just below the navel, can help you monitor this. As you breathe slowly and lowly, you may begin to notice that your abdomen moves outward as you inhale and moves back inward as you exhale. No forcing. When done properly, the abdomen will move all by itself with no effort at all on your part. Happy breathing! Pick a Peck of Pandemics by Paul Edwards When the lockdown came, I suddenly wanted to know a lot more about what people had written about pandemics in the past. There were a few books that I had read before, one of which I read again, by the way, but I was curious to see whether, by using a few keywords in a search of Bard, I could create a reading list for myself. The unqualified answer was yes. And in fact, the truth is that I have found at least 50 books that I could have read on Bard alone, and several more on Bookshare. There just isn't enough space to acquaint you with all the books I have found and read, though I suspect there will be a pretty hefty list that will come out after our next Library Without Walls call, put on by Library Users of America, on the third Wednesday of July, the 15th, at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We ask each person to tell us about two books they have read about pandemics or plagues. Jane Corona, our treasurer, sends out a list of all the books discussed soon after. If you would like that list, send me an email at ewards.paul, numerals 955, at gmail.com, and I will send it to you. Library Without Walls meets every other month on the third Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Become a regular with us. First, some fiction books, all of which are on Bard. Wanderers by Chuck Wendig. Veracity by Laura Bynum. The White Plague by Frank Herbert. The Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. The Plague by Albert Camus. The Genius Plague by David Walton. The Red Lotus by Chris Bojalian. The Darwin Elevator by Jason M. Howe. Earth Abides by George R. Stewart. And from Bookshare, The End of October by Lawrence Wright. Nonfiction books include two books on the Black Death, In the Wake of the Plague by Norman F. Cantor and The Great Mortality by John Kelly. There is a fascinating book about a 19th-century hero from London called The Ghost Man by Stephen Johnson. Books on the influenza epidemic of 1918 include The Great Influenza by John M. Barry, The Plague of the Spanish Lady by Richard Condor, Flu, the Story of the Great Influenza Pandemic and the Search for the Virus that Caused It by Gina Colada, More Deadly Than War by Kenneth C. Davis, Pale Rider, and another book, Pandemic 1918 by Laura Spinney. Books on the last century of pandemics include The Pandemic Century by Mark Honigsbaum, Viruses, Plague, and History by Michael Oldstone, and Spillover by David Quammen. I hope this list helps brighten your day. The End of October by Lawrence Wright A Review by Penny Reader
My pandemic reading choices have seemed fairly consistent with the kind of person and reader I think I am. If there's some kind of political or environmental disaster going on, and one isn't there, I'm likely to be reading Night of Camp David or A Very Stable Genius. As quarantine became real and daily statistics describing sickness and death have ramped upward, I read Station Eleven, abandoned the stand in the middle when it became too violent even for me, switched to the nonfiction of The Great Influenza, when reading The Atlantic left me wanting to know more and more and more. Why? So I can be prepared? So I might know what in the world I can do to protect the people I love? Or maybe I'm just a masochist. The final speculation may in fact be the explanation that describes me best, as I have spent the last two nights reading and finishing at three o'clock this morning, the end of October. If you're a fan of post-apocalyptic novels, even when we are actually living inside one, if you, like I, devoured Dr. Strangelove and On the Beach when you were in high school, and you've never forgotten a single detail in either, the end of October is for you. As for me, it may be my last post-apocalyptic novel because I may never recover from the cloud of dread in which I am now enveloped, or maybe there won't be any more apocalypses to be post of. In any event, if you are crazy like me and you somehow derive enjoyment from knowing or speculating as much as you can about what lengths you might go to to spare the people you love, and as much of humanity as might be possible, or just to spare yourself and keep on living, this is the novel for you. Lawrence Wright is an absolutely brilliant writer and researcher, and like all of the other reviews, I am simply blown away by how much of our current pandemic experience he conjures. The novel is a mashup of many other post-apocalyptic novels that dwell on sickness and death, sweeping over the world and destroying many, actually most, lives, leaving the few survivors to find one another and attempt to create a new, more humane world community, and post-nuclear scenarios like On the Beach. I couldn't put it down. I am unlikely to pick it up again because all of the details are so easily found in headlines in this week's Washington Post and the New York Times. I am very likely to recommend it to you. Book Review When Your Ears Can't Help You See by David Fauché Columnist, technical writer, adaptive tech instructor, and disability advocate Deborah Kendrick turns from escorting us through the healthcare system as blind individuals with her 2019 book, Navigating Healthcare, When All They See Is That You Can't, to a different aspect of self-help with her just-published title, When Your Ears Can't Help You See, Strategies for Blind or Low-Vision Individuals with Hearing Loss. In 24,400 words divided among 11 chapters, Kendrick explores the terrain of hearing loss as a blind person based on several decades of personal experience and hard-won mastery. In a friendly, conversational style, Kendrick takes the reader on a journey of discovery. She opens the conversation by asking, So what happens when your sights stand in, so to speak, that remarkable ability you have developed to listen acutely and interpret sound with such keen specificity, is compromised or vanishing? or when the echolocation that used to let you see with your ears is suddenly silent. In the book's opening chapters, Kendrick discusses how hearing loss negatively impacts functioning. She explains that while sighted people have some workarounds, limited lip reading and visual cues, the blind must shake the shame, double down, and become familiar with the range of environmental helps and assistive tools now out there. 
You have the good fortune to experience combined hearing and vision disability in the 21st century. At no other time in history have there been so many products and programs available to maximize the hearing you do have. The remaining chapters demonstrate that it's okay to be blind, and it is okay to have a hearing loss too. Kendrick describes some easy strategies, such as choosing a booth in a restaurant, choosing to sit in the middle of a group, electing to invite a small group of no more than six people to lunch, or decorating your home with acoustically friendly furnishings, including rugs, pillows, or wall hangings. But the advances in hearing aid technology make up the majority of the chapters in this book. Kendrick describes the changes that have made these ear computers into amazing digital sound manipulators, able to remove background noises and modify certain sound environments. She discusses the six leading hearing aid manufacturers, only one of which is located in the United States, with the others in Switzerland, Singapore, and Denmark. A discussion follows of the several types of hearing aids on the market and their arrangement of processor, amplifier, and microphone. They include ITE, in the ear, BTE, behind the ear, RITE, receiver in the ear, RIC, receiver in canal, ITC, in the canal, CIC, completely in the canal, IIC, invisible in the canal, and CROS, collateral routing of signals. But there's more. Kendrick explains that it's not as simple as plopping devices into your ears and away you go. The process of interacting with and learning the nuances of your hearing aids is a minuet danced between you and the audiologist. It begins with a hearing test to determine the range of the hearing loss and whether it's sensory neural or conductive, continues with the reading and interpretation of an audiogram, and concludes with a determination of what type of hearing aid will best suit you based on your lifestyle. But it's not over yet. Training your brain to work with the hearing aids is also important. This includes several trips to the audiologist as the two of you determine your needs. Describing your use of localization and even echolocation, should you still be able to use this unique skill, is important for the audiologist to know. Ask your audiologist to move about the room and have you point to where he is. Walk down the hall and demonstrate to him how you can or cannot hear the spaces made by doorways. Tell him if your hearing aids make your ears feel blocked and thus create a barrier between you and your environment. Remember that all of this takes time. You won't have all the answers and solutions on the first visit with your audiologist. You probably won't have it all figured out by the second or third visit either. A subsequent chapter expands possible uses of hearing aids. It examines ways to connect your hearing aids to the telephone. Recent developments include the MFI, or Made for iPhone, hearing aids. Apps available on the iPhone that allow control of hearing aids get a mention. Android fans will also be in the game soon. Another chapter describes various remote microphones, such as the Roger Pen and Connect Clip, which allow you to hear people in meetings or tune in a lecturer in a large room. This chapter concludes with a discussion of adapters that facilitate listening to television programs. Yet a third chapter describes PSAPs, or Personal Sound Amplification Products, and other over-the-counter sound expanders that can be of use to someone with a mild hearing loss for significantly less cost than that of a hearing aid. The concluding three chapters cover resources, 
funding, and profound deafness, respectively. Deaf-blind consumer resources, including listservs, organizations, and the Helen Keller National Center are listed. I did find this chapter a bit confusing, as resources were interwoven with sections on travel strategies and use of non-hearing aid devices or apps that offer sound magnification. The resources might have been better placed in an appendix at the end of the publication. Ways to fund your hearing aids and related equipment, including the National Deaf-Blind Equipment Distribution Program, NDB, EDP, Vocational Rehabilitation Services, Veterans Administration, or Lions Clubs, appear in the penultimate chapter. The last chapter consists of a brief discussion of how to handle profound hearing loss, though this doubtless deserves its own book, as does the option of a cochlear implant, the ultimate beyond profound deafness option. In summing up, it is well to remember Kendrick's closing thoughts. We are living in an era where possibilities abound, and dual sensory loss can be minimized by a plethora of tips, techniques, and tools. What matters is the overview I hope you gain from reading this book, the clearer picture of how large your own life can look, even when your ears can't help you see. I consider this book a must-read for any blind person who is also dealing with hearing loss or anyone who works or lives with such a person. Beginning Again by Anne Chapetta. Last September, I was dismissed from my position in federal service. I don't like saying I lost my job because I am not returning to work, at least not in the traditional sense. I did feel lost, though, along with being angry and hurt. The loss of routine and confidence kept me from bouncing back right away. When 2020 unfolded, my desire to find employment in the counseling field didn't appeal to me anymore. I realized I wanted to go in a different direction. Since I am once again collecting SSD, I am focusing on learning more about technology, marketing, and copywriting. I've been taking online classes. I am determined to relabel my goals and accomplishments. It's scary, but I now tell folks I am semi-retired. I am pursuing my writing and marketing work, and I am grateful to be able to open a new door and walk through it with a positive attitude. The ACB community takes a role in this positivity. The people I've met through ACB are some of the most accomplished people I know and admire. Through ACB, I've found mentorship and encouragement, and I have learned to pay it forward. I have ACB to thank, in part, in looking forward to my path to the future. Cavemen, Christians, and Civilized Society Labels Categorize, Separate, and Demean by Anthony Corona Thousands of years ago, before any history was recorded, humans were basic and not far above the animals they lived alongside. Cavemen, as we now term those early humans, had very different needs to survive and thrive. If one such cave person needed a cave and another had a desirable one, if the first was stronger, he took it. As those early humans lived and learned, the first vestiges of an organized society began to emerge. They learned that together, they were stronger in that harsh world. Fast forward a few thousand years, and empires ruled and conquered. Strength in numbers and the need for human society led the way to the advancement that we now call law. Granted, those empires still had so much to learn, 
but at that time and place they thought they were living the best way. In the greatest empire of the ancient ages, if you identified as Christian, you would be thrown to the lions. Pretty harsh treatment just for living in the world of a singular god. That empire eventually collapsed and human society continued to move forward, adapt, and learn. Jump a few thousand years ahead to the 20th century. In the first two-thirds of that century, there was a term that was not only acceptable, but used in clinical and governmental missives, retarded. It was an umbrella term to label people who had different mental and physical abilities. In some institutions and agencies, blind individuals were even categorized under that term. Retard is not a nice word. It groups and demeans. It separates and dehumanizes. There were so many other terms, such as mongoloid or simple, just to name a few. Society learns more about conditions, impairments, and different ways the brain and body can develop. Society also was forced to not only realize that these individuals were people, but they absolutely deserved the respect and dignity of changing the landscape of language to eradicate the demeaning terms that were used in ignorance and fear of the differently abled. Terms were needed because the human society is a society of language, and so terms were introduced to the lexicon of our language to ensure dignity and respect for the people formerly known as retarded. Oh, that pesky moral is hiding somewhere between the Christians being chomped on by the lions and the retards. Isn't that an ugly sentence? I won't point out whom here has been ugly or bigoted, nor will I praise those voices of learned reason. The moral of this little storied history examination is to present this. What we don't know or understand is not wrong. Like those early Christians, there are people in our society who are not understood, and that in itself is sad. However, many of those people are not just misunderstood, they are persecuted and bullied. Christians once fought to be heard and live among society peacefully. The disabled community, to which we belong, had a long and hard battle to be recognized and labeled. At this moment, it still strives to promote understanding and acceptance. How many terms are there for vision differences? Shall we all accept being those blind people? No, of course we won't. So why is it okay to ask these members of our society, these humans, to accept anything less than the respect they deserve? Ask, or rather, tell them that they don't deserve the same respect and recognition we demand for ourselves. I was both horrified and uplifted by various portions of the conversation here. I choose to believe that most humans will choose to be better if they know better. Now it's time to teach each other how to be better. Affiliate and Committee News MCAC to discuss the warmth of other suns. In this epic, beautifully written masterwork, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson chronicles one of the great untold stories of American history, the decades-long migration of black citizens who fled the South for northern and western cities in search of a better life. From 1915 to 1970, this exodus of almost six million people changed the face of America. Wilkerson compares this epic migration to the migrations of other peoples in history. She interviewed more than a 1,000 people and gained access to new data and official records to write this definitive and vividly dramatic account of how these American journeys unfolded, alerting our cities, our country, and ourselves. 
Join the Multicultural Affairs Committee on Tuesday, August 25th at 7.30 p.m. Central Time for the discussion and share your thoughts and ideas. The discussion will be held via the Zoom platform. For more information, contact Chair Peggy Garrett via email prcgarrett at sbcglobal.net or via phone 832-242-4941. ACB of Texas to hold virtual convention. ACB of Texas will hold its 42nd annual convention August 28 to 29. Its theme is ACBT, 2020 Vision for the Future. This convention will be held virtually. Join us for a variety of informative, educational, and entertaining sessions, including sessions on unemployment readiness, independent living aids, leadership training, technology updates, and a variety of vendors in the exhibit hall displaying items to increase independence for people who are blind or visually impaired. For information, contact Peggy Garrett via email president at acbtexas.org or by phone 281-438-9665. Missouri Convention to be held in Springfield The Missouri Council of the Blind will hold its 64th Annual Convention, October 9-11, through 11, at the Holiday Inn on the Plaza, 2431 North Glenstone Avenue, Springfield, Missouri, 65803. Call 417-831-3131 to make your reservation before September 3rd to get the MCB rate of $99 plus tax per night. The annual MCB convention brings together our membership to take care of business, hold elections, and much more. Vendors and exhibitors display the latest technological aids for the blind. Members display and sell arts and crafts, along with several social gatherings and the awards banquet. For more information, contact Virginia Drapkin at 314-832-7172 or via email info at mobland.org. Michigan to hold virtual convention. Michigan Council of the Blind and Visually Impaired will hold its virtual state convention October 15 and 16. For more information, send an email to info at m-i-c-h-i-g-a-n-c-o-u-n-c-i-l-o-f-t-h-e-b-l-i-n-d dot org. Here and There, edited by Cynthia G. Hawkins. The announcement of products and services in this column does not represent an endorsement by the American Council of the Blind, its officers, or staff. Listings are free of charge for the benefit of our readers. The ACB Braille Forum cannot be held responsible for the reliability of the products and services mentioned. To submit items for this column, send a message to s-l-o-v-e-r-i-n-g at acb.org or phone the National Office at 1-800-424-8666 and leave a message in Sharon Lovering's mailbox. Information must be received at least two months ahead of publication date. SSA unveils redesigned retirement benefits portal. The Social Security Administration's newly redesigned retirement benefits portal can be found at 
www.socialsecurity.gov slash b-e-n-e-f-i-t-s slash r-e-t-i-r-e-m-e-n-t. The redesigned portal will make it easier for people to find and read about Social Security retirement benefits with fewer pages and condensed, rewritten, and clearer information. The portal also is optimized for mobile devices so people can learn and do what they want from wherever they want. It now includes the ability to subscribe to receive retirement information and updates. Picture this. Are you using audio description but finding it hard to keep up on what's new in the field? Are you new to the audio description profession or industry and hoping to find one place where you can stay connected with the most current news and developments in the field? Then here's the podcast for you. Picture this. A show about audio description and accessible entertainment. This semi-monthly podcast will talk about the world of audio description, discuss the latest technology trends, and interview industry insiders, movers, and shakers. We will hear from consumers, personalities, creators, and content producers. Your co-hosts are Carl Richardson and Brian Charlson, longtime consumers of audio description. Picture This is now available for download. New episodes will be available on the 15th and 30th of each month. To access the podcast, go to https colon slash slash p-i-c-t-u-r-e-t-h-i-s-a-u-d-i-o dot l-i-b-s-y-n dot com slash r-s-s or t-i-n-y-u-r-l dot com slash y-d-f-q-r numeral three e-e. You can also do a search for the title Picture This in iTunes or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. To leave feedback, suggestions, or ideas for a future podcast, please get in touch with the Picture This team by emailing your comments to p-i-c-t-u-r-e-t-h-i-s dot a-u-d-i-o-d-e-s-c-r-i-p-t-i-o-n at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 857-302-2817. We may use your email or voicemail in a future episode. 2020 ASCO Award Winners The Association of Schools and Colleges of Optometry, ASCO, recently announced the recipients of its 2020 Special Recognition Awards. Dr. Janice Shar is this year's Lifetime Achievement Award winner and ASCO's first female recipient. This award recognizes an outstanding individual who, over an extended period of time, provided exceptional leadership to ASCO and to optometric education, made outstanding contributions to the optometric community, and displayed exemplary commitment and dedication to the association. The ASCO Rising Star Award is given to an outstanding faculty member or administrator with less than seven years of service who has made noteworthy contributions to fulfilling the mission, strategic objections, or programs of ASCO. This year's Rising Star Awardee is Eric Mothersbaugh, OD, MPH, Dean of the Illinois College of Optometry. Ryan Yuan is the winner of the 2020 Student Award in Clinical Ethics. 
This annual national award, sponsored by Alcon, is available to optometry students during any point of their professional program at an ASCO-affiliated school or college of optometry in the United States and Canada. The application consists of an essay of up to 1,500 words describing any one of the following scenarios. A patient-based case study that the student encountered as part of their clinical learning experience or a research-based case scenario that the student has encountered during their clinical or didactic learning experience, or a professional ethics-based scenario that the student has encountered during their clinical or didactic learning. ABLE data discontinued. Due to a realignment of the priorities of the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, NIDILRR, ABLE data will be discontinued on September 27, 2020. New from National Braille Press. Newly available is Deborah Kendrick's When Your Ears Can't Help You See, Strategies for Blind and Low Vision Individuals with Hearing Loss. It is available in Braille, two slim volumes, BRF, DAISY, and Word. Whether you grew up blind or lost your sight in your 50s. These are techniques and technologies to help you adjust to hearing loss. Fitness Over 50, an exercise guide by the National Institute on Aging is now available in Braille, two volumes, or BRF. This book includes everything you need to begin your own exercise program, including nutrition tips, easy-to-follow exercise, and expert advice. The Keto Diet Slow Cooker Favorites by Topics Media Lab is also available in Braille, two volumes, or BRF. It includes more than 100 recipes, tips, and tricks for the ketogenic diet. These delicious slow cooker recipes will help you meet your wellness goals. Looking for a way to celebrate freedom? NBP has the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution available in Braille, one volume, or as a BRF. These items are free. Limit one per customer. Also available is the tactile American flag with the Pledge of Allegiance in contracted or uncontracted Braille. The flag is red, white, and blue and has tactile stars and stripes. The Pledge of Allegiance is in large print over the red and white stripes and is also in Braille over the red stripes. Breaking news. National Braille Press has resumed the paper edition of Syndicated Columnists Weekly with the June 22nd issue. For more information, call toll-free 1-800-548-7323 or visit tinyurl.com slash ydxlc numeral 3 sa High-Tech Swap Shop For sale, HumanWare SmartView 360 Video Magnifier up to 24 times for visually impaired. Lots of great features, barely used, asking $1,200. Contact Elaine at 270-826-4348 or via email ehbpb, numeral 4, at gmail.com. ACB Officers President Dan Spoon, First Term 2021 3924 Lake Mirage Boulevard, Orlando, Florida, 32817-1554. First Vice President, Mark Reichert, First Term 2021, 
Jefferson Davis Highway, Apartment 622, Arlington, Virginia, 22202-3309. Second Vice President, Ray Campbell, First Term 2021. 460 Raintree Court, Number 3K, Glen Ellen, Illinois, 60137. Secretary, Denise Colley, First Term 2021. 1401 Northwest Lane Southeast, Lacey, Washington, 98503. Treasurer, David Trott, Second Term 2021. 1018 East Street South, Talladega, Alabama, 35160. Immediate Past President, Kim Charlson, 57 Grandview Avenue, Watertown, Massachusetts, 02472. ACB Board of Directors, Jeff Bishop, Kirkland, Washington, First Term 2021. Donna Brown, Romney, West Virginia, Partial Term 2021. Sarah Conrad, Madison, Wisconsin, Second Term 2021. Dan Dillon, Hermitage, Tennessee, First Term 2021. Katie Frederick, Worthington, Ohio, Second Term 2022. James Crott, Miami, Florida, First Term 2022. Doug Powell, Falls Church, Virginia, First Term 2021. Patrick Sheehan, Silver Spring, Maryland, Second Term 2022. Michael Talley, Hueytown, Alabama, First Term 2022. Jeff Tom, Sacramento, California, First Term 2022. ACB Board of Publications, Debbie Lewis, Chair, Clarkston, Washington, Second Term, 2021. Paul Edwards, Miami, Florida, Second Term, 2021. Zelda Gebhard, Edgley, North Dakota, Partial Term, 2021. Susan Glass, Saratoga, California, Second Term, 2021. Penny Reeder, Montgomery Village, Maryland, First Term, 2021. Accessing your ACB Braille and eForums. The ACB eForum may be accessed by email on the ACB website, via download from the web page in Word, plain text, or Braille ready file, or by phone at 518 906 1820. To subscribe to the email version, visit the ACB email lists page at www.acb.org. The ACB Braille Forum is available by mail in Braille, large print, NLS-style digital cartridge, and via email. It is also available to read or download from ACB's webpage and by phone, 518-906-1820. Subscribe to the podcast versions from your second-generation Victor Reader stream or from http colon slash slash www.acb.org slash bf slash.